Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. If you could leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else, it goes a long way. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, let's get to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. What's up, guys? JD here. And today we are talking about auto recycling. What's that? Sound pretty boring? Well, it is not. Stay tuned because I'm going to talk to a guy who runs a business doing tens of millions of dollars a year, family owned business in the auto recycling space. David Gold, or as I call him, Cousin David, he's my cousin, third generation. His grandfather started this business, his dad ran it. In 2005, David took over and blew it up. Went from one yard to five yards. David is so passionate about this business. He talks about how he runs it, who he runs it with, what the business model is, what the unit economics look like. And best of all, at the very end, he gives a playbook. If you wanted to start an auto recycling company today, how would you do it? He gives you the playbook and tells you how you can do it and make boatloads of money. Let me know what you think on Twitter. I'm at RealJohnDavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. You can get me on LinkedIn as well, John Davids. And now here's the show. So let's, let's just start at the beginning. What is it? How do you describe what you do? I am an auto recycler and dismantler. And to most people, that means nothing. So essentially, the net net of it is... All those vehicles on the road need to go somewhere at the end of their life, whether they die to do natural causes or prematurely in an accident on the roads. And our company has been taking these vehicles of all kinds since 1979 here in the city of Toronto. And you joined the business. This was your dad's business, I guess? Exactly. I'm actually third generation in the industry. My father became a lawyer after he didn't see much of a future in his grandfather's smaller auto recycling footprint at Old Western Road in St. Clair in the heart of the city in Toronto. Would rather my grandfather retire and my father wanted to get into a more honest business later after becoming a lawyer, which means getting back into the auto recycling business, as he said. So he bought the location that I'm sitting at right now in the east end of Toronto in 1979, was for sale. He left law after 11 years and purchased this because he saw an opportunity at that time. Didn't know if he was getting in the scrap metal business or a derivative thereof, which is auto recycling, but he knew there was an opportunity. And we have a larger footprint here of 11 acres, and the city has grown around us. And that's what he saw, which was growth and opportunity. Gave up law which he was happy to do, and bought this place here, which at that time was what you would call a junkyard. Right. So I called it like when you and I set up this podcast session, I called it a junkyard. And then you texted me back and said, no, no, it's auto recycling. So just to clarify for the listener, like when I say junkyard, is that just a pejorative term in your mind? Or was that what it used to be called? And now it's not called that anymore? We do not use the J word anymore. Historically, especially in America, businesses like ours, we're referred to as junkyards. And 
at that time when I got the place, it really was a junkyard. It's one of those situations in our industry, John, where a lot of people get into this business because it's a hobby. They have a farm, they collect some cars and sell some parts. They have a shop and garage, they accumulate some extra vehicles that customers never pick up. And or like myself, you get into this business because you have the same last name as the person before you. So when he got into the business, it really was a junk business. When I got into the business in the early 90s, it was already transforming into something much more professional and mainstream. And we didn't know it, but we were green before it was trendy. Yeah. So let's give people, I want to dig into the business model and the playbook of like, you know, how this thing actually functions. Let's just give people some scope and scale for a second. So I know you've been through some transitions over the years. You've, I think you've bought places, you've sold places, you've gone public, you've gone private. But today, as it stands, how big are you? Give us a sense whether it's employees or revenues or acres. How should we think of you in terms of scale? Well, you're certainly right. We've been through many evolutions of business and business models. I will say that for the longest time, basically from 1979 to 2015, our life was pretty much on autopilot. We were very consistent. The business was very clear-cut and never had any debts, fortunately, from day one. Built the business organically. So we started off with one location and I think he had maybe two people here and one security guard that was living here and eventually grew in 2015 to five locations and over 200 people. The evolution of the business became essentially, from my point of view, being hungry and engaged in the business and finding a niche within the auto community, specifically the reusing of automobile components, which is the purest form of recycling which is how we grew. And it's a business much different from what I understand yours is, John, is that we are not necessarily based in technology. We are a business that is manual. We need people to take these vehicles apart and drain them and categorize them and handle them. So it's a labor-intensive business model. And suffice to say, we grew, we saw opportunity, grew into some other markets, namely Niagara Falls, New York, to get a footprint in the US. And then from there, further east to Ottawa, the second largest market in this province, Ontario, and then ended up buying a facility, a state-of-the-art facility in Port Hope, and then another one in Cornwall. So we went from three people in 1979, to answer your question, to about 2015, when the business became part of a bigger entity and changed the direction of how we've been going all these years. We were involved in a conditional concurrent IPO at that time. So that right. takes us from 1979 to 2015. Okay. Let me just pause every second. So in 2015, what happened is you guys basically became part of a roll-up, went public, and then eventually you bought the business back. I'm yeah. dumbing it down, but is that basically what happened? Well, you know what? That's the exact way to describe it. The uh, Many industries were consolidating, specifically our customer base, the collision repair industry, for example, with all the banner groups you see in our market, you know, the Boyd Group, CarStar, Fix Auto, Assured, things like that were really ramping up. In other words, you needed to be part of something bigger. 
we never really saw it that way in our industry. Our industry is namely one that has lots and lots of customers, lots of small shops and garages and independence to some banner groups and to the dealerships. And then the, you know, our customers are also retail people. So we have a no customer that does more than like 3% of our business with us. So we're kind of insulated from a, you know, a major downturn with a customer, if you will, like many other businesses. That made the business attractive for, let's just say, you know, there's money out there and roll up very smart people that have been involved in consolidating industries. Saw auto recycling at that time as really one where there's not much in the realm of roll ups. There's one major corporation that's bought a flurry of yards and then sort of stopped and transitioned into other things. What, and what now there's called? been a few niche players. The main player from way back in the day is called LKQ. And they are a behemoth of a company that started in the auto recycling industry and rolling up auto recycling facilities in America. From there, transitioned to new parts and has many other product lines as well. A great company. And really, everyone after that is aspiring to get to that level in our industry. Okay. So let me go back for a second. So you said that by 2015, you had about 200 employees and I think about five yards at that point. Is that right? Exactly. And I mean, when you go from one yard to two yards or one businesses to two businesses, you've kind of you know, really multiplied the amount of tasks that you put on your shoulders. For right. me, it's the labor of love. Like I'm a worker. I've been working with the best and brightest auto recyclers. And believe me, there are many great business people who are in our industry, very welcoming and warm, almost like you can call them up and they'll open their books to you throughout the country. So for me, it was more about a passion. I am not a car person. Don't love cars per se, love business and like people. And this was tailor made for me. The only thing I've ever done. And the consultant that I work with for most of the years said, you know, Dave, like the old cliches, do something you love. But for me, it was be the best, be the best in my market, look at what everyone else did and try to be as innovative as possible as our industry is not really one based on too much innovation, but to try and be the leader in all aspects of the business. And that allowed us to get a higher profile for our business. And it was sought after by more than one company, three companies, in fact, of which the first two we turned down. The third one being in 2015, we thought had legs. We went into it with very strong businesses doing the exact same thing in the northeastern United States and decided to take the route and go public and be a part of something much bigger, which naturally we all thought was the future. You want to join alliances with you know a bigger entity. And that lasted for a few years. And then uh, eventually they pulled out of Canada, which is why I'm talking to you. And I'm back on my own here as the owner of the business yeah. in a different form than it was pre-2015. So let me... Let me back up here. So the company that you went public with, and I want to I want to get into this in a few minutes, but you went public with a company called Phoenix. You ended up buying the company back. And I want to talk to you about that process. But I want to share a story. So you and I were out to dinner maybe two months ago. 
for a big family dinner. And I was sitting next to you. And I noticed it was like 6pm and you were on your phone, like tapping away. And I was like, David, what are you doing? And you were like, Oh, I'm just talking to someone. I'm just buying cars. And you were tapping away and you were like, Yeah, let's buy this one. Let's buy this one. And over the course of about 30 minutes, I think you bought... Was it like 7 cars or 4 cars that you bought? How many cars did you buy that night? I think maybe we got night a total of about 7 at that particular okay. auction. Okay. So you bought, you bought and, 7 cars. Um, what I want to try to figure out here is just the unit economics of like, you're here, you're buying a car. What is that car for you? So you buy the car and then what happens? Just give me a raw example. You buy a car for how much and then what's that car worth to you when you sell off the pieces? So about three minutes before you and I got on this call, I was doing the exact same thing I was doing at the party a few months ago. And I was clicking away, handed the baton off to a trusted buyer to take over for me. And essentially, the role is pretty simple. We look at a vehicle. In this case here, I'm looking at a 2015 Toyota Camry that's been smashed. I look at the kilometers. I look at the engine size. I look at whether it's a hybrid. And my sole goal is to figure out the anticipated sales of that vehicle. So what am I going to get back when I sell all those parts in six months or a year or a year and a half? What am I going to get back from that vehicle? So if that vehicle, based on the technology and the request for the parts that we log every single call and request we log, we know through our buying software that that vehicle has XYZ parts. We add it all up. It comes out to let's just call it for easy math, $10,000 worth of anticipated sales in this vehicle. I know I'm going to deduct my margin, which is my cost to process that vehicle and handle it. And then I'm going to deduct a little bit more for the buyer's fees and towing and storage and so forth. And I'm going to come up with a bid of about, call it $6,500 for that vehicle, which I'm willing to pay to own that vehicle to be able to part out. Just uh, as a rough example, which is very very close to what I just did here not too long ago. So you're looking at that example at a $6,500 cost of goods sold, and you'll sell that for $10,000. So it's a $4,500 or a 45% gross margin. And that's kind of standard. That's what these transactions would go for. Exactly. I mean, there's a few factors that play into it, but that's the net of it is it's really not any magic to it. There's not really uh, much science to it. A lot of it is a little bit more artsy than science because we don't know what we're going to sell sometimes. But in terms of the math and how the numbers shake out, we know that on average, we hit our projected sales and we know that the spread that we put on every vehicle is consistent with what our costs are and we're satisfied with that. So yeah, the example that I started with is pretty much how the business works day to day. Yeah. Okay, so that part of the business makes sense. You're buying a smashed up Toyota Corolla, you're going to take out the pieces of it, and you're going to sell those pieces, and you're going to make a profit. Is that most of what you do? Are there other sort of chunks of your business? Or is that like 99% of it right there? Well, that's a big part of it. I mean, the the $3,500 gross profit that comes on that $6,500 purchase, if we have to pay the full pop, there are other benefits to buying a vehicle and doing scale and doing volume. And that is the there is some residual scrap metal that we get. There are things like batteries, there are catalytic converters. And these things are commodities that have real value. We also don't count the tires into that we resell into our mix. So 
there's some other little benefits to handling a lot of vehicles and maximizing the throughput with our 11 bay dismantling shop, which is why sometimes we'll extend it and average some vehicles out, pay a little more just to keep the business humming and keep the flow going, which is very important in our business being, you know, like an assembly line. We need, we need numbers. We need all the vehicles to be profitable that we buy, of course, but we need, we need the numbers just the same. So we're a little bit flexible there with the goal being of making sure we buy X amount per week to meet our, our goals that we set for 2022, for example. Quick break here while I do an ad spot. If you're enjoying this content, go ahead and give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash realjohndavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. I share a lot of good content on Twitter. I break down business models. I share entrepreneurial stories. I talk to people on there. And what I really want to do is grow the audience for this podcast. We're getting thousands and thousands of listeners every episode, but I want to keep the momentum up. Best way to do that is to share more content on social. And the more people that are following and liking and commenting on it, the more reach it has. So go ahead. If you find any value in this podcast, all I ask is follow me on Twitter. Now back to the show. And so let's talk about how you actually run this business. So you said at one point you have 200 employees. I don't know what it is today. But what are the departments that you would need to run a auto recycling yard? Well, it really starts like many businesses with the buy. And uh, we've got a half a dozen people in our buying department analyzing, and also they're responsible for pricing. So the main departments are essentially you buy the vehicle, you price the vehicle and the parts. We use third party softwares that many shops and independent shops and garages use to identify the parts and their value. We look at other recyclers and what they're charging for the parts. And a lot of this stuff is learned on the fly. There is no real formal training for us as we handle every make and model. And in that respect, it's kind of a unique industry. The bulk of the people are really in handling the parts. Dismantlers, we've got 11 dismantlers. You've got your inventory people who inventory the vehicles. You've got parts pullers and shippers. You got 10 drivers on the road. You got 13 salespeople on the road. And you know, you're supporting staff, administration, and typical extra resources that you need because the business really relies on making sure that we can process the vehicles, A, because there's orders, and B, because historically the business has always been profitable. We have been a little fat with people, pretty much all on site with the exception of the salespeople. So yeah. in a nutshell. You know, in addition to a handful of loader operators and some other people I'm I'm forgetting here, the team is more nimble, whereby we're a little bit more of a flat organization where we can shift gears and go from part stocking to part pulling to shipping and that kind of thing. And literally, most auto recyclers are really family run or have that family run mantra whereby, you know, we can wear many hats and you know, you come in one day and you might be supposed to be doing A as a rule and it might do B, C, D kind of thing. Yeah, That's kind of how the industry is run. And that's kind of what I like about it. You do what you got to do to take care of, really, we're here for the customer. And that's the net net of it. So it's not black and white in terms of you know where, where people work, but it's pretty well structured and there's a good org chain of command and uh, they're legitimate big businesses. 
especially the the growing and the auto recyclers that have the energy and put the energy and effort into making it a real business. And a lot of people make good careers in our industry. Mm-hmm. So how does it break? I'd imagine that when you go from one, two, three, four, five yards in different geographies, you can't be there all the time necessarily. How do you or what goes wrong as you scale from one yard to five yards? Which are the pieces that don't function as well? You know what? I've learned that when you separate the people, especially really you have in our industry a handful of old school tradespeople that grew up in the industry or were around cars and have a feel for it and love it. Because ultimately, someone's got to be a product expert. And there's only really a handful that get it at a high level. So one of the immediate things I noticed is that when you spread your resources, and, and as I just described, we're all used to helping each other when we're short, for example, for one reason or the other, it's a little harder to do when you're a state away or four and a half hour drive away. And those are some challenges that you just kind of you know, have to overcome. You, you increase your headcount maybe a little bit more than you'd like. And naturally, the bigger you grow, sad to say, but you're going to have a little bit more mediocrity. Our business is typically a hands-on business where those people in charge that are invested and the owner is, is there or their family is there. And that's just kind of how it historically works. One of the main departments that we kept centralized was the buying department. And our other yards didn't have to worry about that at all. However, I will say that as we bought more, because we doubled and tripled the number of vehicles we bought, we didn't save any money in buying because we're buying in a platform where we're competing against others. So there was no savings when we grew and bought more product. That might be different from other companies where if they buy more, they're going to get better deals. For us, it is the opposite. We didn't get any savings at all. Most of the employees and needed to be local for all the reasons I mentioned in the beginning of this call, just the nature of what we do. You have to touch the part. You have to be there. You have to be on site. People buy from local people in our industry. It's a little bit different than you know the Amazons of the world where it doesn't really matter. For us, it sounds crazy, but a salesperson is so important in our business where a friend of mine just lost a $200,000 a month salespeople. And people bought from that company because of that salesperson. So he hired three other salespeople that together, the three are not up to $100,000 yet. So they're half of what the one salesperson who left did. That just is to give you an example of what we're dealing with in, the, in our industry and how important it is to be local and to be part of the community and really to build the relationships with your customers because our business is done on the phone, just like you and I are talking right now. It's not done on uh, click a button and the part's going to show up because the return rate's high enough as it is. And uh, we're now dealing with vehicles that are data centers and computers on wheels. To get the part right requires a little bit more dialogue and a lot more questions than it ever did before. I want to talk to you about the whole technology innovation in just a second. But one more question just on operations here. I'd imagine it's a pretty capital-intensive business because you're buying a lot of hardware. You're buying cars, wheels, you know, whatever you're buying here. Just from a capital management standpoint, like, are you constantly yourself looking at cash flow? Like, oh, we need money for this or for that, or have you developed enough of a sort of a cushion that that's not an issue for you? Or do you have a lot of loans with banks and they're financing, and you're just keeping debt on the books? How do you actually fund this operation? 
That's really the idea behind our business model is, you know, we own the lands, so there's no debts there. And really, when you're a second and third generation auto recycling facility, you build up reserves of money historically. So those that are second and third generation are going to have it a lot easier because they've already built up the reserves, they already have lots of inventory, been through evolutions of business and make money and and keep it. And, And a lot of us are pretty humble in what we do and pretty conservative. So there's no real high risk plays that we make, if you will. It's almost like I said, autopilot from 79 to 2015. So so you know, there's good thinking. years and then there's great yeah. years. I just want to be clear. So you're saying that you fund this, again, very capital intensive operation. You don't, when you say you don't have debt on the land, like it's not mortgaged, but you don't have a, a bank line? Like, do you have an operating line with the bank or you don't even have that? We have never had a bank line in our business from day one. That is so, insane. There are businesses that, have, that are way less capital intensive than yours that rely on bank debt. It's actually pretty amazing that you haven't needed to do that from the beginning. I mean, that's some pretty rigorous operational expertise to be able to do that. And it's fortunate. I mean, listen, when we buy the vehicles, before we get them out of the insurer's pound, we have to pay for them. So there's some serious capital. We buy a lot of vehicles over our scale. There's some serious capital required, which we pay the tow operators and individuals for their vehicles, and we pay on the spot. But being in business for this long, we definitely have the reserves. And um, one thing that has never been an issue for us is is capital, so much so that it's something I've never even had to think about, even when looking at acquiring another recycling operation, some of which have lost kind of their mojo and are fledgling a little bit, never even really had to consider financing or money. So in that respect, exceptionally fortunate and realizing it's much different than many yeah. people are used to in business for sure. Okay. So, so the takeaway here of this whole conversation we've been having is if I'm looking at a... Well, so I'll take the, I want to start a recycling yard in a second. Let's not go there yet. If, I, if I'm a recycling yard today, so if I'm just driving down the street and I see whether it's you guys or somebody else, and let's just say they've been around for two or three generations, I can assume that they're making a lot of money for a few reasons. A, they've had a lot of time to build up cash reserves and pay down debt if they ever had debt on their properties. They've paid that debt down. They've got some operational expertise. They've got smart people working there. So these businesses, by and large, especially if they've been around for a decade or two, are doing very, very well. Would that be the right characterization? Or are there companies in your industry that have been around for a long time that, are, that have struggled that whole time? Or they would have gone under if that was the case? The thing is, is that if you drive by and, and look at one, a lot of it depends on where they are located. I have a friend in Boston that just sold his four-acre, his fifth generation in his 50s. He just sold four-acre facility. It was listed on the front page of the Globe and Mail that was sold for $150 million for the four acres. So when they were in the horse and buggy, the old man didn't look at it as a land play, but it sure was a land play. They grinded it out. They were in business since 19... It's 100 years anyways. It might be 1918 or might even be 1908. But literally, it was in the horse and buggy days. So a lot of the recyclers out there the biggest threat that I see is a lack of engaged auto recyclers. So those that aren't fully invested and willing to grow 
kind of coast and you know you and i both know john when you coast there's only one way you're going to go and that's sort of down and that's where they're going a lot of them so consolidation industry has been kind of ramping up a little bit auto recyclers have literally been closing their doors specifically because of covid but even before then there are fewer and fewer recyclers because of the costs involved and energy and effort required to do a great job and you're going to see less auto recyclers period going forward so i would say the ones that thrive are the ones that are in higher populated areas the ones that are smarter business people or at least hungrier and engaged business people and it's very hard to paint our industry with one brush because it couldn't be any further from the reality of what really would exist in today's marketplace. So if I were to... I like doing playbooks. I like deconstructing and saying, Okay, so if I'm a young person out there today, I want to be in the auto recycling business. My first question to you is, would you recommend that? <laughs> and whether it's a yes or no, put that aside. But if you were to start your business today, and let's just say you didn't have the advantage of you know three generations having done this before you already. Give me a playbook for actually getting into it today. That's a good question, John. I will say that one playbook, and I've seen this in a recent road tour, is an owner and his right-hand man actually selling the employees the company. So that is certainly one way to do it. Best play is... When you're a young person, if you love this industry, you love cars, and you love the opportunity to reuse and recycle, if you get into a good quality place, there are many owners who will pass the business down to somebody or some group and say, listen, you know, I'm just going to paraphrase one example I heard. Pay me what I'm making now for the next X amount of years, could be seven, could be 10, and then the business is yours. I'm going to be here to support you and consult and help. You'll pay me my rent after that, but you'll wind up with a business in X years. So, so that, that is, that, to me, a playbook that makes sense and is a, is a win-win, which is what you want in business. Yeah. And there's a huge migration now of boomers who are retiring and passing away. And their businesses, in some cases, I'm not talking about in the auto world right now, but in general, if you have an accounting firm or a law firm, your business just dies with you. And that's a shame because those are worth money. But in this industry, and it kind of reminds me of um, mobile home parks in a way, which are being acquired and because they can't be built anymore in the US, you can't actually zone for new mobile home parks, I don't think. So they're passing hands as well. That model actually seems really smart here. So you find a yard that's been around for 20, 30 years run by one owner who doesn't have kids necessarily, is not going to pass it on. And you go and either work there for a bit and try to take it over, or maybe just approach them and make a deal and say, Hey, I'm interested in doing this and I'll do a deal with you. Or as you said, I can pay you your shareholders' earnings, uh, your annual shareholders' earnings times five or seven or 10, and I'll pay you rent beyond that. And you can, taking over a business and improving it is a way smarter approach here than trying to build something from the ground up. Is that right? Honestly, John. It's funny you asked this question because I was somehow or other, I was thinking about this very same scenario last night. And the way you just described it is exactly right. I mean, no question. The baby boomer generation is getting older and they're looking for a way out. And especially in our industry, it's not like you're going to put a for sale sign and someone's going to pay you what it's worth because you know, you're the dentist, you're the doctor, really. So 
to me, there's value in a business that's been around for a long time. The name, people know us, people know our phone number. I see them on the street. We saw one cop and he saw me wearing a standard shirt and he looked at me and he said, 416-286-8686. And I remember the day that they came in and gave us that phone number because we had 281-1161 and then 281-7772. And then they changed to that. And I said, oh boy, not knowing anything at the time. Sure enough, any shop and garage in the local community knows that phone number and they know it and that's worth something. And to me, that's why I want to be here. That's why I work so hard is because I see the recurring revenue, the recurring interest and people telling you since on the ground, talking to -to day-to-day people, they appreciate this place and what we do. So I think if you want to be in this industry, you got to love it and you got to learn from mentors who've done this before you. And there certainly is opportunity, I'm sure in this industry and and in others in that kind of fashion. It's just one play to be able to get into business, something that I might do if I was forced to do and there's no shame in it. It seems like a, a win-win for all parties, for sure. Okay, let me, let's finish off with some gold here. For all those listeners who have tuned in and have stayed to the end, let's just say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy David a facility. Okay, You and I are going to... Well, not you and I, because you're already in the business. But me and my other friends, we're going to buy a facility. If I bought one today, give me three things that I could do to immediately... With the state that most of them are in, because not everybody's standard auto record. Not everyone runs as well as you do. Most of these yards that I could buy right now, what are three things I could do to make more money right away? Well, I would focus on inventory acquisition. I spend a lot of my time on vehicle acquisition, but it pays off. Okay. So one, I would focus on that. Two, I would make sure to have a, the best inventory management system that you have so you can manage your inventory and maximize the parts pricing for your parts because you'll be paying more for salvage for sure. And you need to get the value for the part and customers are happy to pay it. Three, I would try and expose my parts to as many portals as possible. Get your parts listed on estimates, get them listed on the web portals that are industry related and make sure that people know that they can call you because if you're the only one with a part, and I see that very often, you will get a phone call. So those are three kind of ways that I would look at to grow your business and make money if you just get into it. And certainly reach out to locals that uh, are be happy to trade with you. Listen, a lot of auto recyclers, their best customers, the other auto recycler, believe it or not, our best customers are fellow auto recyclers of which we buy and we sell lots of parts to them because they have roots in their communities and loyal customers that they have accounts with that they trust. So get out there and we're all open. We're all ears, which is why when you called me, we didn't even have a conversation or we did this all via text actually. And I said, let's do it. So you, know, glad you did. Thank you. It's uh, like a therapy great. session for me. So thank you. <laughs> Let us know. You already gave your phone number, but give a plug in case anybody wants to uh, get some car parts. If you need any parts, by all means, we're www.standardautorecords.com. That's our company, Standard Auto Records. Main office here in Toronto, Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. And uh, yeah, 416-286-8686. I'm extension 232. My door is always open except for this hour. I'm on with John. 
and um, happy to talk to anyone at any time about anything. And, okay, uh, like like a it. true auto professional, extension and all. I love it. There you go. 232. That's me. And yeah, I appreciate everything you've done, John. I listen to a lot of your savvy and what you're doing. And I'm honestly humbled. It's a much different level than what I've described here. But at the end of the day, what we've all learned is you got to have more revenues and expenses and tons of thing in between. But that's what you got to dumb it down to. And I admire everything you're doing. And I definitely uh, appreciated our time together on the phone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.